Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. In last week's episode, I chatted with Dr. Tim LaSalle about the basics of regenerative agriculture. Today, I'm excited for you to hear from Diana Rogers, who gets into more of the nitty-gritty, breaking down many misconceptions regarding veganism and vegetarianism, methane emissions from cows, the idea that red meat causes cancer, and even more. Diana Rogers is a real food dietitian and writer living on a working organic farm. She runs a clinical nutrition practice, hosts the Sustainable Dish podcast, and speaks internationally about human nutrition, sustainability, animal welfare, and social justice. Diana has written two books and also helped to produce the short film Soft Slaughter, which won a Real Food Media Award. Her latest book and film are called Sacred Cow the nutritional, environmental, and ethical case for better meat. As always, I like to share a friendly reminder with you, which is that if you're loving what you're hearing on the Health Investment Podcast, I'd so appreciate it if you'd tell a friend, coworker, or family member about it. I'm super grateful for your help in spreading the word. All right, it's time to hear from Diana. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing, you deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing, there are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm gonna share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I wanna help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for joining me here today on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'd love if you could start by sharing your story and your background and specifically what led you to become a registered dietitian and to live on an organic farm. All right. Um, I'll give you the the truncated version. Um, I uh, was very sick growing up and didn't find out until I was 26 that I had celiac disease. And so that answered a lot of questions, but not everything. Um, I was still sort of battling with my blood sugar and... Um, discovered the paleo diet and decided basically to change my career um, and become Mm -hmm. a registered dietitian sort of midway through my life, um, basically about 10 years ago. Um, And uh, the farming stuff, uh, so I actually worked on farms, uh, organic farms all through high school and college as my summer job. And then um, my husband, who I met in college, was an environmentalist and kind of trying to figure out what to do with his life and read a book by uh, Wendell Berry called The Unsettling of America. And that sold him on becoming a farmer. He read a ton more books. He went back uh, for a master's degree in soil science and left his high-tech career. And um, so we've been living on farms for the last 18 years. Um, and what I've noticed is that when people talk about dietary sustainability, they're usually talking about vegan and vegetarianism. Uh, not many people are sort of blending this idea of ancestral eating with, um, 
the idea of regenerative agriculture. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I was just mentioning to you that the podcast interview from last week was kind of tackling some of the basics of regenerative agriculture. So I'd love to get into some of the more sort of hot button issues surrounding it. You post some really great quotes on your Instagram mm-hmm. and tackle some of the misconceptions out there. You mentioned veganism and vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. So are vegan and vegetarian diets really better for the health of the planet? Um, well, I love to start with nutrition only because I think we need to be talking about what foods are best for humans and how to grow them in the best way instead of what foods are most sustainable and how can we feed them to humans. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. That, so uh, let's start with that. Well, I just, um, you know, I'm happy to talk about the unsustainability of vegan and vegetarianism. Just, um, it's just that uh, I think that the thinking of our, how do we make our current agriculture system fit our diet is a very different discussion than how do we produce the healthiest food for humans in the most sustainable way? Do you know what I mean? Like, Uh um, and so once we establish that, a diet low in processed foods, full of nutrient-dense meats and vegetables, um, both animal products and uh, plant products, uh, because humans are omnivores and there's nutrients in meat we actually can't get from plants. Mm -hmm. Um, But not to say that not eating plants is is ideal either. I think um, if you can digest them – they, they make meals certainly much more interesting, and um, there's some great nutrients in plants as well. Um, I think a diet of only plants is quite harmful, um, and it, there do seem to be people who appear to be okay on a vegan diet, but for most people, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, – so just sort of getting that out of the way, what's the most nutrient-dense diet? And I and I think we have to look back to evolutionary biology and, um, you know, what did humans eat before we became agriculturalists? Mm-hmm. And when you then look at regenerative agriculture, it's following the same thought process. It's how were ancient herds of animals roaming before we domesticated everything and started planting corn and soy and wheat and rice? And what we see is in nature, um, herds move in large bunches and they um, never stay in one place Mm -hmm. uh, for too long uh, because there's – you could be a predator in the woods like a lion or something. So um, their movement – and not staying in one space for too, too long is actually what grasslands need in order to thrive. Um, they don't want to be overgrazed and they don't want to be undergrazed either. They, it needs just the right amount of impact from grazing animals in order to be really healthy. Um, and so we can mimic that with cattle and electric fencing because, um, you know, there are some people out there that think we can just rewild everything. And while that's a great idea in theory, it just doesn't work because humans have, basically taken over um, most wild areas. Um, And we just don't have the population of predators that we used to have. And so, for example, in my area in Massachusetts, deer have really taken over and there are no wolves. There's no natural predators. 
and a lot of people are pretty uncomfortable with hunting. And so we have this massive problem with way too many deer and they're devastating the forests here. Um, they're eating all the habitat for ground nesting birds. And it's just a huge problem. And I fear that um, if we were to consider rewilding, we'd either have a, you know, have to massively move everyone who lives in a rural area into an urban area. And I don't think that that's a great idea. Um, and I'm concerned about um, just the, the realistic uh, possibilities of, of what that looks like. Right. When someone who's vegan or vegetarian says they're getting adequate protein through plants like broccoli and legumes and soy products and that they're supplementing to get any nutrients they're missing from meat products, what's your response to that? Um, I don't think that supplementing is um, a, su a good substitute for actually getting your nutrients from real food. Um, right. As a dietitian, I, I believe in eating your nutrients, not taking them in the pill form. Um, protein is something that's highly contested um, as far as our needs. Um, in the book Sacred Cow, I did do a pretty deep dive into the RDA for protein. How much protein do we need? How did we come up with those numbers? And Basically, the RDA is is pretty low, and um, what very thin people need to um, avoid chronic diseases um, of things like muscle wasting. And so, um, optimal protein is a much higher number than what we're being told. And there's a lot of benefits to eating more protein, and one of the biggest ones is satiety. It um, mm -hmm. the more Protein is the most satiating. It fills you up the most uh, out of all the macronutrients. Macros are carbs, fat, and protein. And um, we have this problem right now with obesity and uh, type 2 diabetes, and those are largely from overconsumption of foods and um, overconsumption of refined carbohydrates specifically. Um, what we see is when people increase their protein, especially from animal sources, which is the most bioavailable and has the most nutrient density per gram of protein and per calorie, um, we naturally see people eat less because they're just so full of, um, you know, good stuff that they mm -hmm. are craving less foods and, uh, weight loss is um, pretty effortless when you just increase your protein intake. I know you often ask and poll vegans and vegetarians on your Instagram of why they went back to eating meat. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most common responses they give? Do they notice a real change in their bodies when they're not eating meat? Yeah, the number one reason I've I've noticed uh, the number one answer is definitely a failure in health. By far. It's not like they had some ethical awakening um, and decided killing animals was somehow better than not killing animals. I mean, uh -huh. um, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. But that's um, – there are some people, though, I've talked to who have explored the ethics of, you know, is it really possible to be vegan and um, – in fact, uh, there's one really great book called A Critique of the Moral Defense of Vegetarianism by Andrew Smith, who's a mm. philosophy professor at um, Temple University in Philadelphia. And he was vegan. And this started this book started as an exercise for him to sort of justify his veganism. And he ended up talking himself out of it. Hmm. 
Um, so it's, it's just kind of interesting, but again, for most people, um, they, their bodies just end up sort of not liking a vegan diet. Hmm. I'd love to talk about some of the awesome quotes that you post on Instagram, One of them uh, is that soil, not oil, holds the future for humanity. So can you elaborate Mm -hmm. on that? Sure. Um, So right now, our industrial agriculture system is highly reliant on fossil fuels, um, tractors, and then all the inputs that we need, the fertilizers, the uh, pesticides and herbicides. Those are um, All of these are highly reliant on cheap, cheap oil. when we look at more natural, smaller scale regional food systems that rely on animals for inputs and are not growing such industrial monocrop versions of things, are, are doing more small scale um, integrated farms, we see um, much less reliance on fossil fuels and um, a much healthier soil for um, for the future of our food system. So, um, monocropping, uh, that's when you have one crop that's, you know, fields and fields of fields, like what you see when you're flying over anywhere in America, pretty much. Um, the soil actually degrades in that system because there's nothing really holding it down from eroding away. So when rain comes down, it actually just washes the dirt away. Anyone who um, has planted a new a new lawn um, knows that before that grass comes in, if you get a heavy rain, all your topsoil is going to go. And that's basically if you were to imagine what cornfields look like, um, if there's no cover crop in between the corn, um, it's just bare soil with sticks of corn coming out of it. Um, mm. And we're sterilizing that soil with the use of things like glyphosate. Um, and so uh, what what we do want is the soil to be covered as much as possible. And we can do that with cover crops when we're growing um, uh, row crops like corn, or we can do that with grass when we're raising animals, um, grazing animals. Hmm. And then I, from the previous person I had spoken to, I learned that organic farming uses a lot more tilling and then conventional farming uses a lot more chemicals. So can you just define kind of in your own words what regenerative agriculture is and why more people don't know about it? Well, I, I don't know that I would say organic farming necessarily uses more tilling than conventional farming. Um, uh, mm. I mean- Okay. On the farm I live on, we have a mix of um, we don't really till, but we definitely do disturb the top layer of soil in order to grow vegetables for um, massive amounts of people. Um, but we do have a lot of perennials, and we do ra- grazing animals as well. So um, the idea of regenerative agriculture is that it improves the soil, and I think that was the intent behind organic as well. Um, it's just that organic has now sort of been co-opted by a big business and um, stripped of its original intention. Um, I'm seeing the same thing with regenerative. When I go mm. to conferences and I see people that are, you know, importing these really 
um, rare nuts from some place far away and calling them regenerative. And I'm like, hmm, it, <laughs> was the plain regenerative? Is the packaging regenerative? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, unfortunately, I'm seeing, I'm seeing the word regenerative being used in a lot of funny ways. But uh, the basic intent behind regenerative farming is that um, instead of just, you know, maintaining status quo, which is um, the true word sustainability, even though the intent, again, behind sustainability is to improve things, just like the intent behind organics was to improve the soil. Um, regenerative farming is usually um, referred to when we're talking about um, grazing animals, um, but can be applied to permaculture and other types of growing as well. Okay. And then obviously you have your book and then a documentary coming out, which is so exciting. Why do you think more people don't know about regenerative agriculture? Is it just a lack of resources and education or what would you say? Uh, well, um, yeah, lack of resources would be a good place to look um, as as one of the reasons because there's a lot of money to be made in the sale of tractors, in the sale of Roundup Ready corn, um, in the chemicals that are required, and um, and most of our food comes from the industrial agriculture system, hmm. uh, and most of the universities are also teaching, um, you know, just typical agriculture. There are very few places that are actually teaching regenerative and Chico is definitely one of them. There's a few schools um, in the Northeast as well. Um, And so, you know, just like organic seemed really fringe in the 70s and 80s, um, regenerative is still sort of just up and coming and will gain a lot more momentum as more people adopt it. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that any big stores, Whole Foods, for example, or other companies or corporations have been paying more attention to regenerative and trying to kind of change their buying practices? That's a good question. I don't know that I've seen many products at Whole Foods. I shop at Whole Foods pretty regularly, and I I don't know that I've seen the label regenerative on much of anything. Um it's I, I usually run into it more with um, companies like Patagonia. Mm. Um, I know Timberland is actually coming out with a regenerative boot, you know, using leather from regenerative sources. Um, Eileen Fisher actually is also a company that's um, using a lot of regeneratively sourced wool. Um, uh, I guess I haven't really seen much of this at the retail level, though. Yeah. So when it comes to buying meat or produce in a store, what's your best recommendation for people? Or do you recommend that people go more to a farmer's market? I always recommend you go as close to the source as you can, but that's not a reality for everybody. Not everyone has the privilege of being able to be close to a farmer's market, to be able to shop the hours that they're open. Um, just not everyone has access. So I always recommend people just try to buy the most nutrient-dense food they can afford um, and the highest quality they they have access to. Um, so, you know, that might mean for someone living in an inner city that doesn't have access um, to grass-fed meats, um, that might mean just, you know, buying, honestly, more beef and less chicken and pork. Hmm. Um, chicken and pork are the worst. Um 
uh, cattle that are finished on a feedlot do start on grass. Um, and, uh, where chicken and pork are a hundred percent indoors on grain, um, their entire lives. And so I actually think they're a worse choice, um, nutritionally, definitely, um, beef outshines chicken and pork. Um, and then ethically, I think that, um, uh, cattle, when they are finished on a feedlot are still able to walk around. Um, whereas chicken and pork are just in the most abhorrent conditions possible. Hmm. Um, and, uh, ethically, um, oh, that was ethically environmentally. Um, what we also see with cattle is that, um, even feedlot finished cattle, most of their diet is not grain. Most of their diet is, um, living on grass, um, in areas that we can't crop. Um, we can't crop all agricultural land. Most of that land is only suitable for grazing animals. And so if we didn't raise grazing animals on pasture and grasslands, then we wouldn't be using about three quarters of our agricultural land. Um, so that's something a lot of people don't know. And then cattle are actually able to upcycle, foods that would go to waste and emit greenhouse gases anyway, uh, if we didn't run them through a cow and turn them into protein. So for example, um, the, the products that are used in like Beyond Burger, those, those husks from, um, the, the, uh, leftover pea protein, um, those are actually going to animals like cattle who can break that down and turn it into protein where chicken and pork are, those are monogastric animals and they actually need to eat a diet more like humans, um, where cattle need, um, uh, they can eat much more fibrous materials that, that chickens, um, can't eat and that humans can't mm. eat. What if there's the label pastured on chicken or eggs? I mean, mm -hmm. is that a better bet? So looking for hundred percent grass fed cattle, pastured chicken or Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to kind of throw that nuance in there. Um, and also, you know, just because it's grass fed doesn't mean that it was necessarily raised in a great way. Um, mm. there, there's not a lot of, um, uh, humane labels that, um, that go with grass fed. So you would want to see both of those things. And also, um, there's different ways of raising animals on grass. They could be just overgrazing and exposed to the same little patch of grass their entire life or they're, or they're managed holistically or, uh, Joel Salton calls it mob grazing where they're, um, moved frequently. Mm. Um, like I described earlier with, you know, a, a big herd of zebras or something like that moving in, um, they need to be moving. It's very, it's very you know, sickening for animals to be just stuck in one place um, day after day. So what we really want to do is look for more regenerative meats. Um, a lot of farmers are doing it and maybe aren't certified regenerative. So it's important to just know how to ask, um, the right questions. And, um, we actually, I have, in addition to the book and film coming out, um, a course, um, that walks people through, it's called meat curious. It walks people through, um, you know, how to, figure out how much meat to eat, um, all the common questions that people have. But then we have a guide to ethical sourcing, sourcing as part of that too, with all the questions you need to ask um, your farmers or the farmer at the market, um, what to look for if you go visit a farm 
um, what all the different labels mean and what they don't mean. Um, and, you know, it's quite confusing to figure it all out. And I think people who want to do better just feel overwhelmed. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm definitely one of those people. What a great resource. That sounds incredible. I can't wait to look more into that. You mentioned the Beyond Burger. So what are your thoughts on that, the nutritional value of these alternative meat burgers coming out? Are those something you would recommend to one of your clients, for example? Or is it more stick with just 100% grass-fed beef patties or the best quality animal protein? Mm-hmm. Um, well, as far as price goes, um, Beyond Burgers are twice as expensive as organic grass-fed beef. Wow. Um, like if you were to go to walmart.com and look them up. Um, they're just sold in smaller um, – they're sold in half-pound um, increments and the, the packaging is larger. So you think you're getting more value, um, than, you know, the, the one pound block of ground beef that they, you know, has much less packaging that's, Hmm. that's sitting right next to it. Um, nutritionally, I always advocate for the least processed foods as possible. And so, you know, the ingredients in uh, a hamburger are beef, um, and the ingredients in Beyond Burgers are very long. Um, and so I, I don't see how there's anything regenerative about um, making fake meats in labs or factories. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. You mentioned also that in your course, you're going to be tackling some of the misconceptions out there about eating meat. I know one of them possibly that you cover is the idea of red meat. Eating red meat could increase your risk of cancer. Is that something you tackle? I see that circulating all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we we definitely take that head on and talk about the studies against red meat and how they're largely um, observational studies that can't prove cause, but they're reported by the media as fact. Um, with the um, meat and cancer in particular, they're looking at very large population studies and um, you know asking people questions on these food frequency questionnaires, which um, people often lie on. Um, so they've food frequently frequency <laughs> um, questionnaires uh, have been proven to be very unscientific methodology for collecting data on what people are actually eating because they're much um, more likely to fill in foods that they think are healthy. They're, you know, like you want to answer what mm-hmm. you think is the right answer, not right. the truth. Um, and so um, looking at, you know, correlations between two things um, does not mean one thing caused the other thing. So for example, um, eating um, ice cream is correlated with warm temperatures, but that doesn't mean that the ice cream caused 
the sun to come out. And it doesn't mean the sun caused the ice cream to happen. Um, they're just two things that happen to go together at the same time. Um, same with shark attacks. So you, you see more shark attacks in the summer uh, when people are eating ice cream, but that doesn't mean that the shark attacks cause ice cream or that eating ice cream causes a shark attack. Um, so that's kind of the same thing that they're doing with these large population studies. So if you're looking at a typical meat eater in America, um, compared to a vegetarian, a, a meat eater is much more likely to smoke cigarettes, to um, drink more than a typical vegetarian, to um, exercise less than a typical vegetarian. Um, and so it's really unfair to be um, pinning meat as the big difference. So if you really wanted to do a proper study, you would have two populations that are eating pretty much the exact food and have a similar lifestyle. And, um, and they've actually done that. So um, when you look at Mormons um, versus Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists are largely vegetarian. They don't um, tend to drink or smoke. They have really strong bonds to community, which we know impacts your health. Um, and Mormons have a very similar lifestyle, but they do eat meat. Um, and they have the same longevity mm -hmm. as Seventh-day Adventists, but they're conveniently left out of the blue zones. Mm, interesting. So there's something. Um, they've also done studies looking at people who shop at health food stores. And so therefore, you know, kind of adjusting for lifestyle right there. Um, and again, they found no difference in longevity between vegetarians and omnivores. Interesting. How have you found it to be with farmers? Are farmers pretty open to learning about regenerative agricultural processes and making the switch? Or is that a tough sell? Well, I, my job isn't to teach farmers regenerative ag, um, but I have talked to a lot of farmers that have have mentioned that, um, you know, in their communities, going against the tide is definitely not something that most people do. Mm -hmm. um, and so there can be some cultural issues with that. Um, so I know that like the folks at the Savory Institute always try to encourage people uh, farmers to just try it with a small patch of land first um, mm. and, you know, prove us wrong kind of thing. And so I think that that's a really great way to break a farmer in to, um, to learning a, about the value of regenerative agriculture because you can really see the difference and um, there's less of a risk that they're taking in, um, you know, changing all at once. Another really fascinating quote you've posted is that removing animal products from the U.S. would only reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2.6%. Mm -hmm. And I find just in conversations with friends and family and clients that one of the main reasons people switch to the vegan vegetarian diet is to address climate change. So can you kind of tackle the whole methane issue that claims against cattle and what's true and what's not? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's true that this one study uh, that was a peer-reviewed published study in PNAS did find that um, uh, when they modeled what would happen if uh, all of the United States um, removed animal products from our diet, that our greenhouse gas emissions would only go down 2.6%. Um, beef only contributes about 2% of the greenhouse gas emissions in America. Um, transportation and industry by far out out emit <laughs> greenhouse gases compared to cattle. And so there's a huge misperception out there. Um, 
there was a report called Livestock's Long Shadow um, that did um, falsely say that um, cattle are 14% of emissions and transportation is only 14 sorry, cattle were 14.5% of emissions and um, the transportation sector was only 14%. And so therefore cattle are worse than than the transportation sector. But that's actually false methodology there because what they did with the cattle numbers is they did a full life cycle assessment. So they looked at um, you know all the inputs that are needed to grow the grain, um, all the transportation to, to you know, processing, um, just all, every single thing that happens between when the, the animal's born and till it gets to your plate with transportation, they only looked at tailpipe emissions and they only measured emissions. So they didn't take into account the building of the planes, the, the mining of the, of the minerals needed for everything. I mean, it, it goes on and on. And so, um, when you just look at emissions worldwide from cattle, they only make 5% of total emissions compared to 14% from transportation. Um, the reason why the number worldwide is bigger uh, as a percentage um, compared to the U.S. is because in more developing countries where they have less um, – let they're less industrialized, um, they might have more cattle than cars, for example. Um, like in India, uh, there's a lot of cattle walking around in India that aren't actually even being used for food. Um, and so, uh, those actually count towards, uh, you know, these inflated numbers of emissions. So I know people are going to be very intrigued and interested by your book and your documentary. So can you share more about your purpose for both of those? Sure. Um, so the book has, is really about four years in the making, and it breaks down the nutritional, environmental, and ethical case for better meat. Um, and uh, about halfway through writing the book, uh, yet another vegan documentary had come out, and everyone was going vegan. And so I decided to put the book on hold and really turn my attention to making a film because that's how a lot of people um, digest their information. And so I did a crowdfunder, I got started, and um, now they're both coming to an end. And um, I actually am, uh, for anyone that pre-orders the book, um, if they go to my website and enter their um, receipt, they get... um, interviews from the film. We're giving away a cookbook and lots of other things. And I'm trying to figure out how to actually get um, the folks a preview link to the film, an exclusive preview link to the film Ooh. if they pre-order. So um, so lots of incentives to pre-order Sacred Cow, the book. Awesome. And then in the documentary, it's just kind of, is your is it sort of a response to, are you mentioning what the health, the vegan? No, no, the, the, um, we do talk about what has actually caused, um, our diseases and why meat is unfairly blamed. Um, Mm. and, and then we go visit with lots of farmers. We visit with, um, a rancher in Mexico. We visit with a sheep farmer in England and um, we visit with Lear Keith, who uh, wrote a book called The Vegetarian Myth, who was a vegan and then um, uh, changed her diet after uh, some severe health issues. Um, and so it's really just kind of touching on the big picture ideas that we cover in the book much more in depth. Awesome. 
Well, the question I ask each of my guests, the last question is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Um, well, actually, at the end of our book, we do offer folks a 30-day diet challenge called the Nutrivore Challenge, where you focus on nutrient density and food quality. Um, but we also have other recommendations in the book. And um, it's really interesting because uh, the, we turned in the book, obviously, way before uh, coronavirus started. But a lot of the things that we say in the book actually really – um, are much more prevalent now than ever. So, uh, taking care of your health is, is the number one wealth that you have. Um, and another way of being really sustainable in the environment. Um, one thing that a lot of people aren't talking about is, um, you know, the burden you can be on our system if you don't take care of your body and, um, the greenhouse gases associated with, um, obesity and diabetes, like amputations and all the lancets needed for type 2 diabetes, um, all the plastic needed for kidney dialysis once your kidneys fail, all that kind of stuff, um, which is not no small number. Um, and so one of the best things you can do in addition to supporting your local farmers and supporting organic and regenerative agriculture is really just taking care of yourself. Hmm. I agree wholeheartedly. Where can listeners follow and find you? Um, so I'm on Instagram at sustainable dish. Uh, I have a website called sustainabledish.com. Um, all of the sacred cow stuff is at sacredcow.info. And when you um, hit the book section, you can um, find out how to turn in your receipt for, um, for all the goodies that we're offering. Um, there's more information about the film, uh, including a trailer and how to donate because the film um, is is working with a nonprofit to um, work on an impact campaign to really get the word out to young people. It's through schools um, with education programs and things like that. Um, and I have tons of resources, all my favorite books on the topic, um, cookbooks, all kinds of stuff at sustainable at um, sacredcow.info. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Diana. Diana, I know you're super busy right now with everything with these releases. So I really, really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one -on -one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.